We'll begin this evening in Jude chapter 1. It'll take three weeks to go through this short book. Jude chapter 1. Suppose a person joined our church and initially looked like a genuine believer. They said all the right words, they attended frequently, and perhaps even had really good prayers. But over time, this person became more and more, more worldly in their activity, and they still wore a cloak of spirituality. They would still say all the right things in front of us, but they openly participated in ungodly deeds. Perhaps immorality or drunkenness or other heinous sins. And they argued to you that God had promised to save those who came to Him. And they believed that since God had promised that, they were trusting in that promise. And so that meant for them that they could do whatever they wanted to do. And if you denied that fact, if you denied that God does not save a person who comes to Him, then you are rejecting the very fundamentals of the faith. It's hard to argue with that type of reasoning, isn't it? They continue on. They say, God's grace is highlighted by my sin because it was meant for evil, but God means it for good. So I'm going to openly participate in sin so that God's grace can be exalted. And so because God is faithful and because God's grace is highlighted in sin, they claim that they could do whatever they wanted to do. How do you respond to such a person? How do you identify this type of person? What, what if this person was open and blatant about their sin? How do you identify a person who has defected from the faith that maybe in their thinking and in their action they have actually turned away from the faith? Jude helps us answer these questions. How do we spot an apostate and what do we do about one who's in our church? Let me read the entire book here of Jude, and uh, we're just going to focus on the first four verses this evening, but let me just read the whole thing so we can have the context of what he is trying to say. Beginning in verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write a write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh 
and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord come with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. In these first four verses, we will see that if we love the Gospel, we will be willing to contend for it. If we love the Gospel, we will be willing to contend for the Gospel. Jude begins with his opening greeting like many writers of the New Testament do. He begins by telling who he is. He says in verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Who is this Jude, which is short for Judas? Could be the Judas who was the disciple, not Iscariot. Remember, there were two Judases of Jesus' disciples. But it's probably more likely Judas, the brother of our Lord, the half-brother of our Lord, This makes more sense because he doesn't claim to be an apostle. Look back at verse 17 again. He seems to distinguish himself from the other apostles. He says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand. beforehand. Not He doesn't say by us. He says by the apostles. Remember when we were reading 2nd and 3rd John, John would refer to him as one of the apostles as us or we. Jude does not do that. So he is likely not an apostle, so he probably is not this Judas uh, that is not Iscariot of Jesus' disciples. And he even says in verse 1 that he is the brother of James. 
normally a person would call themselves a son of someone telling who their who their father was, but here he's probably pointing to James, his brother, who was well known probably among many of the churches because of his being a pastor at the church in Jerusalem. And so he says he's the brother of James. And we know from Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 6 that Jesus had two brothers named Judas and James among the four brothers that he did have. And so it's likely that Judas is the half-brother of Jesus. And it it appears that Judas, Jude here is one of four, one of five New Testament writers who is not a disciple of Jesus Christ. The other four would be uh, Mark, Luke, James, and Paul. Because he is the, the the brother of James, we understand that he's also the half brother of Jesus. Why not say that? I mean, if if you were related to Jesus in some way. Wouldn't you tell other people about that? Wouldn't you want to put that right at the front of your letter? He probably recognized, Jude did, that that his special relationship with Jesus had nothing to do with his relationship through his mother. Rather, his relationship with Jesus Christ was just like your relationship with Jesus Christ. It comes through faith in Him. And if you know any of the history of the family of Jesus, you know that they did not believe in Jesus while He was here on the earth. They rejected Him, according to John chapter 7, verse 5. They didn't believe that He was the Messiah. It wasn't until later, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, says that His family also believed. And uh, so, so although they had a, a relationship, a familial relationship with this Jesus, they, he, he did not see this as prominent. Instead, notice how Jude, what, how Jude refers to himself. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Instead of a brother, a half-brother of Jesus Christ, he calls himself a slave. This is the word used throughout the New Testament. Paul calls himself this. James calls himself this, a bond servant. Instead of calling himself a brother, he calls himself a slave, showing that he was now, unlike the time while Jesus was on earth, he was now a, in complete submission underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. And I am a slave to Jesus Christ, a bond servant. So that is the author. Notice who, who the recipients are in the second part of verse 1. Two, those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. We, um, we know that these are Christians. We don't know if they're uh, Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. Could be both. Um, and we don't know which church Jude is writing to. It's not specified here in his letter. But we do know that, it is, that he is referring to Christians because of those three phrases. To those who are the called, referring to believers. Those who are elected, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The first uh, description of the Christians to whom he is writing is that they are the called. Perhaps Jude highlights this from the very beginning because he's going to give the readers of this letter, and we should have the same understanding, that he's going to give them some strong warnings about who real believers are. And he he's going to really shake the foundations of what a person believes here. And he wants to make sure that at the very beginning they understand that they are the called. That they are chosen by God. And so he doesn't want them to crumble underneath these warnings. That's what often can happen 
if we if our foundation is based in something other than the election of God. And we need to understand that that truth very carefully. Second description that he gives of these Christians to whom he is writing is that they are beloved in God the Father. Something that is uh, often uh, stated in in John's epistles when he said he he calls the believers beloved of God often uses that uh, term to describe the love, the unconditional love that God has for His children. And then the third description is that they are kept for Jesus Christ. It's not that they are simply called by God and loved by God, but they're kept. It gives the idea of of an ongoing relationship, a, a relationship that will never end. And this should not be too hard for Jesus Christ since He holds the entire universe together. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read this one and I'll I'll cite one other passage that that you can um, just reference later. But Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus can keep us till the end because He holds all things together. Hebrews is a a discussion on how and why Jesus is better than all other creation. Uh, he's better than, than all of creation, I should say. And he begins by explaining that he's better than all the previous prophets. And then he goes on to talk about how he's better than the angels. But look at verse 3 of chapter 1. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, that is God's glory, and the exact representation of his God's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that middle phrase there is the one that I'm trying to point our attention to, and that is that he upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, there's nothing that Christ does not uphold with his power, by the word of his power. He holds it all together. And I'll just uh, give you this other reference, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 shows us a similar idea that Jesus Christ holds the universe together. Turn back to Jude because what you find is that it is Jesus who keeps us secure until the end. And so although we're going to be, uh, the foundations of our faith are going to be shaken a little, we should not be, we should not falter because Jesus will keep us until the end. He will keep us secure until that time. Now, What Jude is also going to point out is that that does not mean that we become passive in our relationship or in our service to Christ. Okay, So Jesus is going to keep us all the way to the end so I can just sit back and go with the flow, just kind of float down the river to eternity type of idea. Look at verse 21. Jude says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Okay, so verse 20, he said, Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God. He recognizes that although we are called by God, we are loved by God, we are kept by Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that we simply do nothing. That we come become completely passive. I don't even know how that's possible in spiritual growth, although there are many people who propose that is the way that we ought to live. But even still, when we keep ourselves in the love of God by cultivating a relationship with Him and 
cultivating spiritual growth. Verse 24 teaches us that it's not ultimately us who uh, can receive the glory. It's not us who causes us to persevere. Look at verse 24. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. And he goes on with this doxology. The ultimate reason that you will persevere to the end, that you will continue on and not defect from the faith until the end, is because of verse 24 says, Him, Jesus Christ. He is the one who keeps you. It's not too hard for Him. He has promised to do it. And uh, we should not be passive in it either. So those are the recipients of the letter. If you look back at the first part, we don't know exactly when it was written. There's not a whole lot of material in this short book to tell us when it was written. It was likely written after Second Peter because Peter anticipates false teachers while Jude deals with false teachers that are in the church right now. And um, Jude also seems to quote from Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. And so it's likely that Jude was written around A.D. 80, uh, around the end of... Uh, that wasn't very clear how I said that. A.D., the two letters, and then the number 80. Um, so it's not very clear, but the point is it's probably towards the end of the apostolic writings, towards the end of the Scripture writings, I should say. And... Um, so that's probably when it was written. Now, why was it written? What was the reason for the letter? Uh, he, Before we get to that, we see in verse 2 that he, he gives a standard um, salutation. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Again, he's going to, he's going to give some strong warnings. And so these are this salutation, this, this desire for mercy and peace and love is is in fitting with what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Verses 3 and 4 give us the reason for the letter. Verse 3, we see that he has a desire to write about the gospel that he loves. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. His ultimate desire was to write about the gospel that he loved. He wanted to write about his common salvation. And so if he had the time... He would have just expounded on the joys that there are in the salvation that they share. Instead, we see in the second part of verse 3 that he had to write about contending for the faith. It says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Although I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, I had I felt the necessity to write to you about contending for the faith. We'll see why that is here in just a second. But what I want to point out to you is the end of the verse. This is what he's talking about. The faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude understood that, that we as Christians, that, the, that his readers and himself have a common salvation. There are always going to be splinters to the the people who uh, who understand the truth. There's going to be heretics who pervert the truth, who stray from the truth. But there also will always be a common salvation. And the Bible is the source of that common salvation. It gives us the body of doctrine that is to be believed and upheld. We hold fast to that 
to that uh, salvation. That's why he says at the end of, of the book that uh, we need to be building ourselves up in our most holy faith in that common salvation that we love. The beauty of this common faith is that it no, does not become obsolete. It is timeless. And, and the message has not been just kind of laid out here in the Scriptures and just kind of packed away in a vault and we can just pull it out at any time we need it. No, it's actually supposed to be defended by the church. That the church today is supposed to uphold the truth of the Word. What's interesting about this uh, this phrase at the beginning, or towards the beginning of verse three, that is a common salvation, and it is one for all handed down to the saints at the end of verse three, is that we have a Bible that is not living and growing in the sense that it's changing. Okay, we don't have doctrine that's changing in the Scripture. It, it is set and secure. It's founded. It's sure. It is God's completed body of work. It is completed revelation. Many ideas and solutions in our day are of the throwaway variety. In order to see this, you can simply type in a message into Google and you'll get all sorts of views, perspective on what the right answer to your question is. And But, but often it's hard to determine which one is authoritative, which one is the correct answer. For example... If you asked your doctor about 30 years ago how your baby should sleep, what would he have told you? On their stomachs, right? But if you go to the last 10, 15 years, they had this campaign that came out called Back to Sleep. It tells it to say that the kids need to be on their backs when they're sleeping. And I'm sure over the next 10 or 20 years, they'll probably come out with another study that determines that they need to be back on their front. You see, there, there's no real consensus when it comes to the the world's understanding of wisdom, it's always shifting and passing away, and there's often things that you can just throw away. And yet, we have the Word that is infallible, that is unchanging, that is not passing away. It is a message that is the exclusive means of salvation and cannot be shifted. It is shiftless. Shiftless. And so we can, with Paul and Jude, have the same confidence as they had. That because we have the same gospel, it cannot be corrupted by time or by any sorts of attacks from Satan or his, uh, or his uh, allies. And so one of the ways that we uphold the truth of the Scriptures, I want to make two applications. One is, that, that it is the church's responsibility to contend for the faith. It is the church's responsibility. Not primarily or not only the pastor's responsibility, although a pastor is supposed to be able to teach sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it, but the church's responsibility as a whole is to uphold the truth of Scripture. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And notice what Paul says is the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. He writes to this 
younger pastor, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write to you that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. Excuse me, the pillar and support of the truth. So, he says this kind of in passing, but we learn a very important doctrine here. We, we learn a very important truth here, and that is that the church is the support of the truth. Now, I hope you understand the difference between that and what some other religions teach that, that, that based, it's based on tradition and that sort of thing. No, it is, it is not the, the pastor's pr- primary responsibility or his sole responsibility to uphold the truth. It is the churches as a whole. And so what I'm, uh, what I'm saying here in, in Jude chapter 1, go back to Jude chapter 1 because what you'll see in the first verse, remember, who is he writing to? He's writing to believers. And who does he say that needs to contend for the faith? Does he step back and say, you know, the pastor or the pastors of your church need to be the ones contending for the faith? He's writing to the church as a whole because he recognizes that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And this is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. When, when false doctrine comes to the church, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the Spirit, what the Spirit says to the churches, He, he says them and, and to seven different churches as a whole, they are supposed to be, supposed to be uh, maintaining sound doctrine. So my first... Uh, point of application from these first three verses that the church should uphold the truth. Secondly, there is great importance to our statement of faith. We have a statement of faith at this church and uh, I actually just took uh, Mike and Kitsy through it in our membership class. Um, and uh, I think it's very important that we understand a basic doc- the basic doctrines that we are upholding, what, what we're trying to defend. Because sometimes what can happen is we say, well, I believe the Bible, and that's good. But, but we need to have uh, kind of uh, summarized um, statements that are made. We understand that not everything that we believe are, is in our statement of faith, but surely we should not believe anything less that's one than what's in our statement of faith. And so I think our statement of faith is very important to upholding that doctrine because sometimes what can happen is that we can get off base as to what is false doctrine and what's not. So we start to move away from these ancillary issues that aren't really fundamental to our faith. Maybe they're taught in Scripture, but but they're not fundamental to the faith. And uh, certainly I'm not suggesting that we are careless in our... um, in the way that we handle Scripture, any part of Scripture, but you understand that there are things that are more fundamental, that are more uh, important to our understanding. So, Joe, so Jude, in verse 3, writes to two believers to tell them to contend for the faith. Why do believers need to contend for the faith? The answer is in verse 4. They need to contend for the faith because there are ungodly apostates in their midst. For for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. Um, and let me continue. He says, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
he quickly describes these apostates and what they have done. He begins by saying that they've crept in unnoticed. They kind of blend in with the rest of the crowd. And that's why I began with an illustration where a person says all the right things. And it's often difficult to distinguish between false teachers and true believers. And so he says that they have crept in unnoticed, but, but what he also says is their judgment has been predicted from long ago. He would, he would say, well, many Scripture writers had predicted it. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, After my departure, savage wolves will arise from among you, not sparing the flock, speaking perverse things and drawing away the disciples if that were possible. So Paul predicted it. Jesus predicted it. The Old Testament prophets predicted it. But God is not taken by surprise. And that's really what that points to. The fact that it has been predicted in Scripture means that God is not surprised by what is happening, that these false teachers are coming in. I want to point your attention to the middle phrase there that they are beforehand, long beforehand, marked out for this condemnation. What is, it, what is that referring to? Because it sounds like God is choosing the wicked to be destroyed. That is, among all the people in the world, He chooses who will go to hell, who will receive eternal punishment. But the Scriptures never teach that God chooses people to destruction as if they are coerced to sin. That God has said, I have chosen you for destruction, and so as a result you are forced to sin and receive My wrath as a result of your sin. Rather, we know that all people are, are by nature headed for destruction. Right? We all were headed for destruction. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll see that even we as believers were headed for destruction. And yet something happened. What we need to understand in, in um, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter, yeah, chapter one. We, in order to understand this doctrine of apparent, God's apparent condemnation, is this, we need to understand the doctrine of election. Look at verse three of chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And he goes on all the way through verse 14. It's actually one sentence between verse 3 and 14 in the Greek language. Verse 11, he continues this idea of, of our election. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. So, what Paul begins with in his letter to the church at Ephesus is that our salvation is not based on our own will. It's not based on our own works. It's not based on our own holiness or obedience or our own choice. Rather, it's based on God and His choice. And what we need to recognize is that we were all destined for 
condemnation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And notice, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. See, we were all destined for condemnation. What happened? How did we get off of that track? Verse 4 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So what happens when Jude says, that they were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. It's not that God says, okay, you, this is where you're going. He doesn't choose a person to go to their eternal destiny. Rather, He creates them. They are destined as depraved people. We're all destined for condemnation. And what does God do? He chooses some to be saved. Some to be elected. Um, if If I were to come to you with or if you were to come to me with two fruits in your hand and said, hey, do you want one? I'll take whichever one you don't take. You have an orange and a banana. I would choose the orange. Is that what God's doing? Because in a sense, when I'm choosing an orange for myself, I'm also choosing a banana for you. So sometimes we think of condemnation as God choosing that person. But I would, I would think a better illustration would be more like how we choose a president. That when we choose a president, we elect who we want to be our president, but we don't also hold multiple elections of who we don't want to be presidents, do we? All the millions of other people who are eligible to become president, we don't say, okay, these are all the people that we don't want to be president. We simply choose the person that we want and all the others are left to, to not be president. So when Jude says that these are marked out for condemnation, you can turn back there. He's saying that in condemnation, okay, we are all destined for hell, for eternity away from God. And in that condemnation, what is highlighted is God's justice. But when God chooses some, He plucks some out from that pathway towards condemnation and heads them on the pathway towards eternal life, we don't see necessarily God's justice highlighted, but more His mercy. Now, God is just in doing this because He actually demands and accepts a perfect payment for us. Um, so what we should understand is that election actually highlights God's mercy. We were all destined for condemnation, yet, but God chose us. Now, this should not prejudice us or prejudice the offer of the gospel. This should not in any way uh, be the idea that, you know what, we don't know who is elect or not, so I'm just not going to pro proclaim the gospel. Instead, we should proclaim the gospel freely and understand that whoever accepts the call of God is elect. That, that those who receive the gospel will be saved, just like the offer comes in the New Testament. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the children of God. John 1.12 
It should also, this understanding of election and condemnation does not, should not prejudice our assurance of salvation. Our assurance of salvation is not based on reading the eternal secrets of God. If only I knew if God has chosen me or not. Our, our assurance is, should be based on the promises of God that all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus is sufficient to accomplish our salvation? That's where our assurance comes from. It comes from our belief in the promises of God. Election and our understanding of condemnation, we also should understand that these are not parallel. The blessings that come from being elected by God are all of grace apart from human works. However, so, so when, when God puts us on this road to eternal life, they're all of grace, not of works. However, the curses that come from not being elect are fully deserved. It's not as if God says, come on, just head that way because that's where I want your final destiny to be. We all by nature want to go that way. We all want to be, we don't want to receive the condemnation, but we all want to be opposed to God by nature. And so we really get what we deserve. Notice the nature of these apostates in verse 15. I'll just point you ahead there. It's interesting how many times Jude uses the word ungodly. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Against him, excuse me. So we know that these apostates are ungodly. And then the end of verse 4 tells us that they turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. Did you notice that? It says, these ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the line of reasoning that these apostates have. Isn't it true, they think, that, it, that God... Uh, took care of our sins through His grace and that our salvation is through Christ alone. That's their reasoning. Okay, so if that's the case, if Christ has already paid for all my sins, then how can I pay for it again? And so that means, and I take it one step further, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want because Christ has already paid for it. Now, we don't have time to turn back to Numbers 15.30, but I, well, I was going to show you what the high-handed sin or the presumptuous sin, the kind of uh, sin in the face of God, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, because I wanted to show you there, and I'll just let you jot that down, Numbers 15.30, that, that there was no sacrifice for the high-handed sin in the Old Testament. There's no offer that could be made to, to, to recover a person from that type of sin. That person instead was cut off. The other line of reasoning that they may have is that these apostates may have is that, you know what? God's grace is highlighted in my sin, right? It's like the backdrop of a, a velvet backdrop with a diamond. See, if you put a diamond in a a white backdrop. It doesn't highlight all its beauty, does it? But see, if we put a diamond in the backdrop of, of velvet, then it actually highlights God's grace. And I think that is true in a sense, but, but that doesn't mean that we, we create that velvet backdrop for God. 
so that His grace can be highlighted. Turn to to uh, Romans chapter 6 because this is an argument that Paul anticipated that his readers in Rome would come up with when he takes several chapters to talk about God's grace and justification, that God justifies a sinner, and that He, he uh, declares him righteous before God. Notice chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Okay, because of all this talk about justification, that we are in a right standing before God, not because of what we have done, but because of Christ, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's what these apostates are thinking. Well, I'm going to turn it into a license for immorality. If God's grace has already been shown to me in justification, then I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Of course, his answer in verse 2 is well known. May it never be. Notice what Paul calls himself or calls us as Christians in verse 15. He continues with this thought, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for, as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that, through, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So what does Paul call himself or call us as believers? He calls us slaves. That we are under complete submission to the law of Christ. That in no way should we ever take the mindset that we have a license to sin because, hey, God's grace can be highlighted. And, hey, I'm already okay. God's already kept me till the end. That's what these apostates have done in Jude chapter 1. In fact, Jude, at the first part of his book, when he identifies himself, calls himself, remember what he calls himself? A bondservant of Jesus Christ. A slave of Jesus Christ. In other words, no longer am I a slave to the evil that, that I once obeyed. Now I am a slave to Jesus Christ. And that's why he says at the end of verse 4, Jude says, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny Him. They don't want Christ as their Master. Christ is called to called us to serve His written Word, and, and these men, these false teachers, are going against it. And so our understanding of election or our understanding of eternal security should never cause us to become complacent or apathetic. I say this often. Because what can happen is when we focus on those doctrines uh, to, a, to a wrong uh, too, too far of a degree, we can neglect all of the, the responsibilities that we have as Christians to Philippians 2.12, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Jude chapter 1, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. We can ignore all those things because, hey, God's already got it taken care of. We need to balance our understanding of those things. Not that God needs us to cooperate in any way. Does God need anything? God certainly gets all the glory whenever we do grow in our faith. But ultimately, we should never become passive. Because passivity only leads to complacency, which leads to contempt against God. And we don't need God. We have a license to do as we please. When I worked for um, this marketing company that that I uh, used to work for, I would uh, occasionally get into debates or perhaps discussions with a well-meaning, well-intentioned believer who basically thought that he had the liberty to do whatever he wanted to do. Not to this extent, perhaps, but but he tried to uh, defend his position on doing whatever type of activity he was doing by saying that 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 um, you know what's wrong with this activity? Show me a chapter and verse where this is wrong. But but what I tried to explain to him and. Uh, probably wasn't able to do an adequate job and perhaps still am not, but I tried to explain to him that there is a great danger in asking that type of question. What is wrong with this activity? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to get as close to the edge as we possibly can without falling over. And often what happens is we, we bring ourselves into danger. And the better answer would be, which would be consistent, or the better question, which I think is consistent with Paul, is what is right about this activity that I'm doing? What What is right about this? Is there something that is prescribed to me by God to participate in this activity? Or am I just simply trying to justify it before uh, before God? Because I think this is where this apostate starts out. He starts out asking questions like, well, what's wrong really with immorality? And um, this this gentleman that, that I would discuss these things with he was in no way doing these kinds of things but um, but I think that's where it can lead if we're not careful with our understanding of the scriptures and, and guarding our freedom because when Christ called you to salvation he did not call you to unguarded freedom it's like a, a parent who adopts a child out of an orphanage Okay, in a sense, that child is free, but, but not in an unguarded way, that they can just do whatever they want. And I think that's similar to our relationship with Christ. Yes, we are free from the bondage of sin that we were once in, but in another sense, we're also slaves, are we not? We're slaves to Christ. We're slaves to righteousness. It doesn't mean that we are without restrictions. And I think that's what Jude highlights here. He wanted to... Cont- he wanted to talk about their common salvation, but instead he felt the necessity to contend for the faith because of these apostates who had come in to the church unnoticed. And so the main command in this first section is that we ought to contend for the faith. And when I say we, I say we as a church. That we ought to contend for the faith. It is a responsibility that the New Testament writers give to all believers, not just the pastor that we need to understand sound doctrine and be able to refute error when it comes our way. 
And the reason that it's so important, Jude tells us, is because of the infiltration that often happens with apostates that come in like savage wolves or are often like sheep many times and go unnoticed. But then they rise up and they, they turn, Paul says, even believers astray if that's possible. Now Jude will explain more uh, as we'll see next week when we look at the destiny of these apostates who defect from the faith. But our goal in all this is to work hard to know the fundamentals of the faith and be willing to contend for them. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the faith that was once for all delivered to all the saints. This common salvation that this secure body of doctrine that has been handed down generation after generation, not through legend or story, but through Your written, revealed Word, through the revealed Jesus Christ, that that we really have Jesus Christ revealed to us in Your Word, that He is the Word become flesh. And as a result, we can be confident, we can have great authority in our uh, presentation of the Gospel and, and of these fundamentals. But often we neglect to understand them rightly. We think that's left for seminary professors and perhaps even pastors, but not us. May You give us the strength to to be able to uh, endure the the work that is required to understand these things. And many times that just comes down to being at services uh, getting well-rounded in the Scriptures by being under the hearing of Your Word. And so I pray that You'd help us to be faithful, that we would be seeking out uh, wise counsel, that we would be uh, helping um, other people see the right doctrine, that we would be holding others accountable in that way, allowing them to do the same with us. And uh, most importantly, Lord, we want to make sure that we are slaves of righteousness, that we are not just believing truth in theory, but that we're actually practicing them, that we're carrying out these doctrines in our lives, that we're not creating or turning these, this good theology into a wrongly applied way of, of giving us a license to sin. May You keep us from the evil one who is trying to sift us like wheat. May You protect us. May You keep us until the end as You've promised to do. And may You uh, help us to anticipate that day when Jesus Christ will come and make all things anew. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.